Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you very much for being here. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to this, I think, the 19th of our Cambridge University series at the festival this year. We spend a great deal of time thinking about culture, about evolution, about science, about society, about imagination. And we're going to continue, of course, with that right now, with a man who's going to discuss what it is that makes us human. He's got a slideshow which lasts about 45, 50 minutes. He's going to take questions from you afterwards. Um, he is a consultant neonatologist at the Evelyn Perinatal Imaging Centre at the University of Cambridge. I know you're going to have an absolutely riveting hour and ask you to join me in giving a very warm welcome to Toppen Austin. Wow, um, thank you very much. Um, uh, thank you all for coming this morning. Um, this is my first uh, trip to Hay, and what an absolutely fantastic um, place this is. <laughs> As even back, my first trip to Hay, and I'm actually standing on stage uh, telling, talking to you about something I'm really quite passionate about, so it really doesn't get much better than this. So thank you again for, for joining me. I, I have noticed, though, um, everybody here has written a book, and they're all sorts of signing books. Um, I haven't written a book. Um, I'm writing a book, so if there's any publishers out there who want to talk to me, I'm, I'm around later on. So I'm, I'm a neonatologist, uh, which is quite a good conversation stopper. Uh, people are saying, what is that? Well, I'm a baby doctor. And I, I did spend a, a little while trying to find a picture of myself looking like a doctor, and I, I came across this slide, which is actually one day when I wasn't um, working. It's uh, a long time back with the, uh, the birth of my eldest son, uh, who's now 17. <laughs> so what does a baby doctor do? Well, um, when I'm not here or, or playing with the kids, I'm responsible for one of the one in 10 newborn infants who require extra care um, around the time of birth. Now, it may be, maybe because they're born a bit early, um, need a bit of help with feeding and growing. Some of my patients are critically ill uh, with multi-organ failure. This baby was starved of, of oxygen around the time of birth. Uh, we've got a little wrap around the body and the head. We're cooling the baby to try and protect the brain. Most of my patients are very small, very small indeed. This is Oliver. Oliver was born at 25 weeks uh, gestation. That's about six months into a nine-month pregnancy. Uh, he weighed 500 grams. That's about a pound, half a bag of sugar. All the various sensors and tubes and wires and monitoring his vital organs, giving him drugs and nutrition to help him grow and get stronger. And his brain in particular is extremely vulnerable. These remarkable images are MRI scans uh, of babies similar to Oliver from 25 weeks through to term. They were taken at the Hammersmith Hospital in London. And you can see that the brain of a 25-week preterm infant is incredibly simple and smooth, but like an apricot. Uh, and over time, it develops into a much more complex, convoluted structure, uh, similar to like a, a walnut. And in the 25 years since I first 
uh, went on to a neonatal intensive care unit, one of the things I've really been fascinated in is, is what is going on in this little person's head? Is he conscious? And, and even further than that, what point in development does one become a human being? And that's the question I want to try and answer in the next 40 or so minutes. Uh, it's a t I'll take you on a journey from ancient myths through philosophy, through molecular neuroscience and brain imaging. Uh, I may not answer the question, but I will hopefully have time for a few questions at the end. Okay, let's get a few facts straight. The brain is extremely complicated, really complicated. This is an MRI tractography uh, scan, and you see all these little fibers showing the various connections of the brain. Each fiber there contains thousands, if not tens of thousands, of brain cells. It's estimated there are about 100 billion neurons in the brain. And this is just one nerve cell. You can see the cell body, and then around it, sprouting out like branches of a tree, the dendrites. And connected to each of these dendrites are lots of other nerve cells. All the little white dots are little chemical connections, synapses, connecting to each other. So there are, within each nerve cell, about a thousand connections. We're talking about a hundred billion neurons, a thousand connections. I think that's about a hundred trillion connections in our brain. And that is a big number. In fact, so I, I want to try and demonstrate what a hundred trillion look like. So I went to Google and I asked Google, what's a hundred trillion? And this is what Google suggested. Take a one pence piece, place them on top of each other, and a hundred trillion will take you from planet Earth across the solar system a billion kilometers away to planet Saturn. That's how many connections are in our brain. And that's just one set of connections. The number of possible connections any brain can have is a number so vast it's almost infinite. And what I think is truly remarkable is that the newborn infant has all the nerve cells that we need for the rest of our lives. And by about two years of age, all the connections are all there, ready to go. And the idea of what it is to be human has... Uh, philosophers from, from, from early ages have, have asked this question. Aristotle, he, he said that mind is, in a sense, potentially whatever is thinkable, though actually it is nothing until it is thought. And this is an idea which was popularized by people like uh, Thomas Aquinas through to Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud felt that the newborn was a blank slate, a tabula rasa, and it was only early life experiences which actually made us human. And I want to sort of challenge this idea and actually say that so much is going on before we are born. So, where do we start? Let's start at the beginning. And no better place to when the sperm enters the egg. That is the start of human life. And I think this point, or the importance of this point, was not lost on some um, great philosophers and thinkers. Averroes, or Ibn Rushd, uh, was an Andalusian um, polymath, and he, he wrote that if the female semen could do what the male can, a female should be able to generate by himself, and there would be no need for the male. So you can see that male anxiety existed all the way back then. <laughs> and that sort of idea that the men were really responsible for what it is to be human, and, and really the women played a bit of a minor role, was carried through, right through till sort of the Renaissance time. This is uh, Leonardo da Vinci's drawing, um, and he sort of divided the way 
the, the sperm entity said sperm came from the testes, but the connection here from the penis to the spinal cord, the soul actually was infused into the um, mother. I'm sorry to disappoint um, the men in the room, but sperm is really just motorized DNA. <laughs> this is a single sperm. Uh, the head, which is, is not really appropriately named, only um, contains some DNA. And then around the neck is, is a bunch of densely packed mitochondria. Mitochondria are little organelles which exist in our cells, providing energy to get the tail flapping. And actually, what's quite interesting is that when the uh, sperm fertilizes the egg, only this head end actually enters the egg, and the rest is left behind. And this mitochondria, which provides all our energy, actually contains its own DNA. So all the DNA in our mitochondria comes from our mother. Comes from you, yeah, well, not all from my mother. Um, <laughs> come from your mother, her mother's from her mother's. So it may not be the soul, but all our energy in our body comes down the female line. Okay, I'm going to take you down through a little bit of early embryology and see what happens. So on day one, the egg is fertilized. By day four, we get to um, the, the cell is divided at least twice. You've got four cells. By day three, you've got eight cells. This globule of um, undifferentiated cells is called a morula. Uh, about day five, they start differentiating. The outer cells will go on to develop into the placenta. The inner cells will form the embryo. By about day six, in a nod to our ancestry, um, the, the group of cells hatches from the membrane or hatches from the egg and implants into the uterus. Cells continue to divide, and then by day 12, some definitive structure develops. And you get a little sac at the top called the amniotic sac and another sac at the bottom called the yolk sac, and in between a two-layered disk of cells which will go on to form the embryo. And then at day 14, something amazing happens and it's called gastrulation. If there's one thing you want to go away with today, remember the most important thing you've ever done in your life, it's not coming to hay, I'm afraid, it's actually gastrulation. Because once you've done gastrulation, you will become a human being. Gastrulation is when you form three layers of cells, an ectoderm, a mesoderm, and an endoderm. And it's important because this is the time that the cells start differentiating. Once you have an ectodermal cell, you'll become, those cells will become skin, will become um, the brain and other external tissues. The mesoderm develops into the muscle, the skeletal system, the circulation, and the endoderm, all the other parts of the organ. Your fate is now destined. And that point wasn't lost on uh, Baroness Warnock back in the 1980s, who led the uh, Fertilization and Embryology Authority, or inquiry, following, uh, I think it was Louise Brown, the first test tube baby in the late 1970s. And the idea of embryology research, which has come back in the news recently, the idea was that actually it should stop on day 14, because on day 14 is the time of gastrulation, it's the time that the embryo is destined to become a human being. Prior to day 14, this early embryo could actually split into two and become two people, a twin. Very rarely even three in the triplets. But by day 14, when these form, and out of the ectoderm forms this thing called the neural plate, the primitive nervous system develops. That, she said, is unique, and that's where we start becoming human, and that's where the whole legislation comes from. Okay, so let me just take you through a bit of this early formation. We have these three layers, and within the, the top layer, 
certain cells become the neural plate. These are scanning electron micrographs showing this amazing process going on. The neural plate then folds in on itself and becomes the neural tube. And from the neural tube, the whole brain and spinal cord will develop. And what signals these cells to become nerve cells, to become the brain? That was something which questioned researchers back in the early 20th century. And Hilda Mangold was a research student in Germany working for an embryologist called Hans Spearman. And she did a, a very interesting experiment where she grafted uh, some primitive embryonic cells from a tadpole onto another tadpole and saw what would happen. Now, you're all going to stare a lot at this two-headed tadpole. Wait a minute before you go back to it. This is the graph. She had a non-pigmented tadpole, took some of the cells, and grafted it to the opposite end of the embryonic tadpole. And then what emerged was a two-headed tadpole. The nervous system had developed twice. But interestingly, both nervous systems were pigmented. You'd expect if this contained the nerve cells um, of the non-pigmented cell that you'd have a non-pigmented and a pigmented head, two pigmented head. So what she had grafted was something which signals cells which normally would have just gone on to develop skin into developing nerve cells. Okay. Um, now, my wife told me not to put this slide up. She said I would lose half the audience. <laughs> and she's not here today. Um, so I appreciate, I, I suspect this half I'm going to lose you now. Um, come back. Um, and don't worry, you lot, I've got some other slides which will probably lose the, the rest of you. This is uh, an ectodermal, a primitive stem cell. And the question I want to ask is how does that become a nerve cell? Okay. What are the signals which were suggested by that experiment um, by Hill and Mangold? And throughout the 20th century, people were looking for the chemical which stimulated uh, the, this, nerve cell, uh, this cell to become a nerve cell. And the first chemical discovered, they called noggin. <laughs> Slang for head. Well, that's good. Uh, why not? And actually, it was just found out that several chemicals actually stimulate these cells to become brain cells. Uh, some are slightly boringly called chordin, follistatin. My favorite is Cerberus. Those who, who know that Greek myth, Cerberus is the three-headed dog who um, stands at the gates of Hades. What was that scientist smoking when he came up with that? <laughs> this is a signal to make a brain, to make us human. But no, it's the guard dog at the entrance to hell. Okay. So the idea was that these chemicals stimulate the cell and it becomes a nerve cell. That's far too simple. Actually, what these chemicals do is they inhibit a protein called bone morphogenic protein. This is why medicine is so difficult. They just give these stupid names. Anyway, BMP. It inhibits BMP. And then it's found out that BMP actually inhibits these cells. What is really remarkable is that all the cells want to become brain cells. We all want to be brain cells, basically, when we're a tiny little embryo. And it's BMP which comes along and inhibits that cell and says, no, you're not. You're going to do something else. And so certain cells will become brain cells if these chemicals are around and they inhibit the BMP. It's an inhibitor of an inhibitor, a double negative. Okay, so let's go back to this cartoon of the, the folding neural plate. So what you have is BMP here acting on the sides, but being inhibited around here, so the neural plate will form. It will go into its default position. The neural plate then folds, and actually the folding of the neural plate for me as a pediatrician is really quite interesting because uh, 
failure of fusion of the neural plate results in a condition called spina, bif spina bifida, which not that common in this country, but is still a major cause of disability worldwide. Now, one of the things I, I, which is, uh, I think, fascinating, if you think I, there were 100 billion odd cells, there are thousands, tens of thousands of different kinds of brain cells. But there are only, at most, a few hundred proteins which are signaling who becomes what, where things go. How does this really complex signaling occur with only a few messengers? Now, one of the really fundamental principles in embryology is that actually the same chemical can have completely different effects all depending on the timing that that chemical works at. So BMP early on determines which cells become neural plate cells and which cells don't. Once the neural tube has formed, BMP is secreted from the neural tube cells. And this time, it's all involved in the patterning of the central nervous system. The central nervous system is very well patterned, so the spinal cord is probably the easiest to understand. The back of the spinal cord contains all the sensory nerves. All the sensory information comes to the back of the spinal cord and goes up to the brain. And the front of the spinal cord contains all the motor uh, nerve cells, so all the motor pathways come out of the front of the spinal cord. And that patterning is due to the concentration of BMP at one end and another protein called SHH at the bottom. SHH stands for Sonic the Hedgehog. And that's not a joke. We'll meet Sonic the Hedgehog again later on. He is one of the most fundamental proteins in brain development. So you have this concentration of BMP at one side and of Sonic the Hedgehog on the other side. And that means that the one side you get all the sensory cells for touch, for smell, for sight, etc. And at the bottom, all the motor cells. OK, so there we go. That's what it is to become human. Um, it's all about signaling the neural plate, the start um, of the development of the human brain. The trouble is, I could have given this talk and talked about a mouse, exactly the same process, or even a frog. And in fact, fruit flies have a very similar set of chemicals and genes. And actually, this is such a fundamental process in developing brains that even one of the most simplest worms, which have only about 350 nerve cells in the problem, the C. elegans, has a similar sort of process. It's been very much conserved in evolution. This is not how it is to become human. We have to look elsewhere. So I'd like to tell you the story of Polyphemus. Polyphemus was better known in, in ancient Greek myths as the Cyclops. And he captured Odysseus on his way back from Troy and held him in a cave. And the Cyclops was this giant with one eye. And there's a great uh, piece in Homer where uh, Odysseus takes the stake and rams it into the eye of the Cyclops and blinds him. And then the next day, this blinded Cyclops, as he lets the sheep out, feels the top of the sheep. But Odysseus and his crew escape, hiding underneath it. And if you look in the ancient literature, the Cyclops does appear quite often. It really did capture the imagination of um, the ancient Greeks and, and others. And possibly because such a condition does exist. So our brain contains two hemispheres, a left and a right hemisphere. And there is a condition called holoprosencephaly, which, where the brain fails to divide in two. And an extreme form of holoprosencephaly the outer features also don't divide, and you end up with a single rudimentary eye, known as cyclopia. Tragically, most of the babies with holoprosencephaly and cyclopia are stillborn, 
and so we very rarely see this condition, but it does exist. This picture's gonna haunt you for forever. <laughs> Dividing of the hemispheres is a, is a really fundamental part of brain development. So this is just to remind you of the neural tube, and it is a tube, so if we look at it lengthwise, you have this neural tube, and the bottom becomes the spinal cord. But very early on in development, little bulges appear at the top, and these bulges will go on to form the brain. And at five weeks into pregnancy, the top end, what's known as the telencephalon, divides into two, and divides into two cerebral hemispheres. And what signals that division? Sonic the Hedgehog. Failure of Sonic the Hedgehog to act on that stage leads to holoprosencephaly and to cyclopia. So why have we got two hemispheres? Found a sort of obvious question, really, I'm, I'm not sure. But one way of describing yourselves, you, you've probably not described yourself like this, but you're all, and, and me as well, we're all bilaterians, okay? Long live the bilaterians. A bilaterian is somebody who has a front and a back, and a top and a bottom. And by definition, if you've got a front and a back and a top and bottom, you have a left and a right, which will be a sort of mirror image. And most animals are bilaterians, and all bilaterians will have two hemispheres. Some animals are not. Starfish are not bilaterians. Um, they, they have a front and a back, but they don't really have a top and a bottom, so they have no left and right. So we have two hemispheres. What's really remarkable about our hemispheres is actually the left and the right are different. And they look different. The front is bigger uh, on the right, on the left, sorry, I think my left and right. Uh, the back is bigger on the right. The fibers here connecting the two, the corpus callosum. And one of the, I think, great advances of, of human beings is the power of speech, which comes from one part of the brain, is our use of our dominant hand, usually our right hand, which is controlled by the left part of the brain. Our two hemispheres are very different, and that, I think, is one of the really key points which makes us um, unique as a species. And this hemispheric difference is actually occurring in the womb. And one of the earliest senses to develop is the auditory sense, and a pregnant mum, the, the baby, will hear the mother's voice. And this is a very nice study using MRI, functional MRI imaging of newborn infants, so just after they're born, listening to their mother's voice. And you can see the area lit up is on um, the left side of the brain. It's activating the left-hand side. And there are other studies which show that newborn is able to differentiate between vocal and non-vocal sounds and differentiate between mother's voice and non-maternal voice. They're already processing this. They're already using their other hemisphere. This is fantastic. This is um, Eddie Wheeler, who posted this on Facebook, and it went viral. The key with these photographs here is that his daughter is mimicking Eddie's face, not the other way around. <laughs> and this is a great party trick you can try on a newborn baby. A newborn baby will recognize faces within minutes of being born. You show a newborn baby a face and it will look at it. You show them a face upside down and it will ignore it. You mimic to a newborn baby and it will mimic and copy you back. And that's exactly what his daughter is doing. Except I think this is probably the first selfie. This baby's mimicking the selfie rather than, <laughs> rather than actually looking at dad straight in the face. But she is utilizing the right side of the brain. 
So the left and right brains are very different, and you may be familiar with it. The, the left brain typically is all to do with logic, with rationality, uh, very analytical. The right brain is the creative brain. It's all to do with emotions and artistic um, creation. So everybody here is all right brains. Uh, the reason I've never been invited here before because I'm a left brain scientist. <laughs> This isn't actually true. This is not how the brain works. The, both sides of the brain are rational. Both sides of the brain use emotion. Uh, the, this left-right differentiator um, is, is, is not true. Um, I will plug a book. It's not my book. I have no, no um, shares in it. But Ian McGilchrist has written a fantastic book. He's a, uh, a, both a, I think a, a, a polymath, a psychiatrist, a, a literary... Um, person, but he has written this book talking about the divided brain, and he describes really nicely what the two sides of the brain does. The left brain is all about focusing on things, focusing on detail, attention to detail, being very task-orientated. And actually, a lot of artists are that when they are focusing on, on whatever they are creating. Very much a linear time course. The right brain, on the other hand, is much more about the broad here and now, what's going on around us, much more in the moment, much more vigilant. This is best described in this picture here. If you've got a nice bit of food, you need a focus on it, you need to know which bits to eat and which bits not to eat, and, and all your attention should be on that. But you should also be aware of what's <laughs> going on around you. <laughs> and the newborn infant will do this as well. If you place a newborn baby on mum's tummy as it's delivered, it will crawl up to the mum's breast. It will show a degree of focus and determination like you've never seen before. It's an amazing thing to, to um, watch and experience. But similarly, and this is my youngest son, just over an hour of age, alert, looking around, not focused on anything in particular, very much in the moment. He hasn't really changed either. But, <laughs> but the newborn infant is able to use both sides of the brain. So there we go. That's what makes us human. We've got a left brain, we've got a right brain. We utilize that in a really unique way. There was a great talk yesterday uh, about chimpanzees and bonobos. I don't know if um, anyone saw that and how they use tools. And yeah, that ruined my talk. <laughs> Our primate cousins show handedness. It's not just them. Cats, both big cats, but also domestic cats. I think domestic cats are left-handed dominant, but they will show poor preference. Whales have been known to feed predominantly on the right side, i.e. using the left side of the brain. And this bird, whose name has forgotten me, from New Zealand, is amazing. It's got a, the beak is actually bent towards the right, so it can use its right eye to focus on feeding, i.e. using the left side of the brain. So hemispheric dominance is something which actually exists in a lot of animals, even um, going back to birds and amphibians and things. It's not unique to being human. Okay, how do we work out what's so special about us? Okay, making connections, maybe that's it. I was trying to work out what is it about the human brain which is different to everybody else. We've got very big brains, okay? Believe it or not, we've got very big brains, we've got very complicated brains. This is the cerebral cortex, the outer part of our brain, the gray matter. It's where all the action happens. 
And the cerebral cortex, the thickness of the cerebral cortex in humans is much thicker than any other species. So this looks at how thick the cerebral cortex is compared to amphibians, reptiles, insectivores, rodents, uh, carnivores, primates. And I decided the, the human being with all these animals should be David Attenborough. It's not just David Attenborough. All our <laughs> cerebral cortices are much thicker than all the other animals. So going back to, to the MRIs, which I showed right at the beginning, of premature babies going up to term, the brain does actually fold and convolute in a very distinct way. And if you do comparative anatomy between different species, you can see that actually most mammals have the brain equivalent to what uh, a preterm infant at 30 weeks has. The structure and foldings of the brain in primates is similar to that of a 33-weeker. But by you get to term, the convolutions and the, the intricate architecture of the brain, which gives it a much larger surface area, that is unique to humans. We have big brains, but they're not the heaviest. The blue whale's brain is six kilograms. But six kilograms out of 60 tons is pretty small. Even the big cats, 200 grams, it's only 0.1% of their total weight. The average man, it's about 2% of our body weight is our brain. Even more remarkable, 20% of our energy that we consume goes to our brain. This is a sort of energy scan looking at the proportion of energy to different parts of the body. So 20% of our energy is going towards our brain. And the newborn infant, if you stand them up, they look a bit funny. They're a bit big-headed. Um, the newborn brain's about 360 grams, about 10% of the infant's birth weight. But remarkably, about 60 or 70% of the baby's energy goes into fueling the brain. And it's a fascinating subject, looking at human evolution and how our bodies evolved to fuel this very energy-hungry organ. Um, and it's a slight digression, but actually one of the really interesting things is actually cooking, possibly not the turning point, because cooking gives you far more energy per gram um, than, than raw food, and that helps our evolutionary biology. But anyway, but that's, that's for another day. Now, one of the problems you face um, in having a big head is getting the head out of the baby, and anyone who's a mother here will probably relate to this. And it's part of the problem is because we walk upright. Because we walk upright, uh, we have a relatively small pelvis. So you've got to get this big head out of a small pelvis. Um, and I'm sorry to, to all mums who've gone through labour and things. Nature has tried to help. It's done it in a few ways. So firstly, we have uh, floating skull bones as a baby. We've got a rigid box here, but a newborn baby has several bones which can be squeezed and compressed that can help squeeze the baby out. And often I see babies who've been born on postnatal wards who have slightly elongated heads that they've sort of squeezed out, and it all sort of moulds itself back with time. The other thing that has happened is that we're actually quite immature when we're born. This is a newborn lamb, and within a few minutes of being born, I really shouldn't be talking about newborn lambs to people here, this is Coles to Newcastle, but anyway, I'm being told uh, within a few minutes, or a few, few, um, they will be able to walk around. Um, again, this is my, my youngest son, um, and he could do a lot of things when he was born, but walking, it took him about a year or, or so before he was able to develop and walk. He is relatively Im immature compared to other species. And all parents will sympathize with this. 
Childhood in humans goes on far longer than any other species. <laughs> Our brains are developing right through different stages, but right through to adolescence and beyond. We have a much longer period of being young. Most chimps, I think, will have a, an infant period, a juvenile period, an adult period. It will go quite rapidly. Whereas here we have far more stages, and it takes much longer. Okay, so for the last uh, 10, 15 minutes, I just want to talk about you know, what it is to be conscious, to be a conscious being. And Descartes wrote very famously, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Sort of a nod back to Aristotle, you are nothing until you've had a thought. And he um, actually, he was very keen on trying to identify the soul, and where the soul sat in the human. And he identified a little gland in the middle of our brain called the pineal gland. And what's remarkable about the pineal gland, having gone and talked about hemispheric differences and things, the pineal gland is a single structure. It's one of the rare examples of a single structure in the middle of our brain. It does not divide. And I think that's where he kind of came with the idea of, and he wasn't the first one to come up with the idea of the soul, because it was just a single organ. Um, the Eye of Horus from, from uh, ancient, Greek, uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, possibly the eye face, looks a bit like a cross-section through the middle of the brain. This is the corpus callosum connecting two halves of the brain. This is a thing called the thalamus, um, and then the pineal gland sits behind here, and possibly resembles the eye of Horus, and the eye of Horus was thought of as the third eye. So there was a lot made of the pineal gland as being the seat of the soul and where we come from. Scientists really do like to sort of put a damp squib on nice myths. The pineal gland makes this chemical called melatonin, Melatonin is very important for sleep and for sleep-wake cycling. Um, it's a, a circadian rhythm. That's a complete other talk. It's fascinating. But it's not about something unique to humans, and it's not really much to do with consciousness. Other people looking at how the brain works, there's lots of different theories out there. Phrenology gained a lot of attention in the sort of 18th century. Uh, phrenology was the idea that under the the skull, different parts of the brain did different things, and actually you could feel the skull, and depending on the shape of your skull would determine whatever characteristics you had. So you may be uh, very cautious, you may be very destructive, you may uh, be very imaginative, depending on the lumps and bumps in your head. That, tend, that, that sort of side of science has tended to be disproved. Brodman did a bit more of a, a sort of methodological analysis of the brain. He was a neuroscientist in the 19th century who looked at all the cells in the brain and classified them and came up with certain areas, Brodmann areas. And some of these areas are actually very important today. So we've got the motor cortex, the sensory cortex, Broca's areas and Wernicke's areas are really important for speech and language, the visual cortex of the Mac, and they all have unique, what we call cytoarchitecture, cell structure. And certainly different anatomical regions of the brain are very important, but far more important than the way the brain works isn't the actual individual regions, it's the connections made between the brains. And it's all about connections. So this is actually, I think, quite a nice way of looking at the brain. The brain has various inputs and outputs, but in the middle is what we call a global workspace, all the connections firing together and talking to each other. So you'll use your perception to sense what's going on, You'll use your memory to think, is this important or not? You'll use your evaluator system to say, yes, this is important, let's focus on it, and let's do something about it with a motor output. Okay. The best example is given by 
looking at, say, one of my ancestors who sees a saber-toothed tiger come into the room. Use your perceptual system. Ooh, saber-toothed tiger. Activates the memory. That killed my old uncle. Evaluative system. This is important. Attention system. I need to focus on this and do something. Motor system. Let's run like hell. <laughs> and this all occurs um, simultaneously within the brain. So let's go back to the developing brain. Um, all the nerve cells which go into the cortex start off at the ventricles and have to migrate their way to the top. Um, the ventricles is a sort of fluid cavity in the middle of the brain, and it's a remnant of the uh, neural tube. It's the, the hollow bit of the neural tube. And all these nerve cells go all the way to the, the edge and to the cortex. And scientists have been very interested in looking at this neuronal migration, this great journey of cells into the cortex. And you starts around 10 weeks um, of gestation. And by term, all the neurons are there. They've all migrated. But the scientists in the 70s who were doing this sort of discovered there was a layer just under the cortex, which was very big, very active, called the subplate. And the subplate has been found to be absolutely crucial in the way our brains connect up and developing the complexity of the brains that we have. And subplates start forming around you know, uh, 13 to 17 weeks. Maximal subplate activation is actually in the time that I look after these premature babies, between 24 weeks in term. But the subplate is still active in certain areas, even beyond into childhood and adolescence. So, one of the remarkable things, um, and I, I think is fairly unique to humans, is the development of the subplate and the specialization of the subplate in different parts of the brain. This is the second slide my wife told me to take out. Um, so I guess this half of the room will zone out. Um, I partly put it in because it took so long to do the PowerPoint, and it seems such a waste <laughs> not to show you. I'm going to show you what happens when you've got a connection going from the thalamus, from the center of the brain, up to the cortex. So early on, we have our little thalamic cell, and it connects to a cell in the subplate. And the subplate cell then goes up to the cortical cell. And it activates it directly, but also indirectly, by activating this accessory cell next door. So this cortical cell is being activated by the subplate cell via um, by the thalamic cell then during a critical period of development, this thalamic cell will also develop direct connections to this cortical cell, as well as indirect ones to the um, accessory cell. So you're now getting uh, input via the subplate, directly and indirectly, and also a direct connection, an indirect connection to the cortex. So this cell is being stimulated one, two, three, four, five, six times effectively. And saying, right, this is an important bit of wiring we need to do, and we'll stay like that. And then later on in development, the subplate cell will disappear off, and this is the mature hardwired cell. And interestingly, this accessory cell, which started off as excitatory, becomes inhibitory. And that possibly is a bit of a sort of beyond the scope of this talk, but that is also a really fundamental point. The inhibitory neurons going into our brain and developing our brain is pretty unique to humans. The subplate then disappears off. Okay, let's try and put this, all this together. And the analogy is the, the growth of an oak tree. So early on in gestation, 0 to 24 weeks, is when the nerve cells and neurons form and migrate up to the cortex. This is the growth of the tree. 
from 24 weeks up to two years of age is when synapses start to form. And by term, by the time you get to term, all the neurons have migrated up. And beyond then, it's all about making synapses. And there are lots of synapses. All cells wire up to every other cell. And thereafter, between 2 and 16 and even beyond, it's all about synaptic pruning. It's all about making sensible connections. There's a thing in neuroscience, cells that fire together, wire together. And, and you can see that here. And it's a truism. Um, what happens is, is that certain pathways get activated, stay activated, and then become fairly hardwired. And all the other connections which are not being activated slowly get um, cut away. And you see the number of synapses between cells actually decreases over time. And this shows a, a sort of graph of that. So as I say, synapse formation begins around 24 weeks before you're born but continues well into adolescence. And this is looking at the peak number of synapses. Now, the first synapses to form are for the basic sensory functions, for hearing, for vision, and that peaks just after birth. And then it gets pruned as um, the child grows up. Language, similarly, peaks relatively early. And we all know this, that newborn or young infants can learn a multitude of languages. And that's because their connections are all there, the way they hear noises and sounds and voices. They can hear all the different... Um, phrases that, that different languages have, and they can absorb that all in. Once those synapses have been connected, it becomes really hard to learn a language. So what do we do? That's about seven years of age. That's around the time they all teach everybody French. <laughs> Bonkers. Higher cognitive functions, particularly in the prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex gives us a planning and attention and active. That develops much later on in childhood. Um, I get frustrated with my uh, teenage boys because they really just don't think ahead. And that's, I think, a bit unfair on them because actually until that point, they didn't have to think ahead. We thought ahead for them. We packed their bags and we did everything. And now we expect them to do that, but their poor little synapses haven't yet formed. And we have to teach them to do that. So uh, I'm all for teenagers. Give them a break. <laughs> okay, the last few minutes, I need to talk about the Connect Home. Um, I have to talk about the Connect Home because I'm interested in neuroscience, and anybody who's interested in neuroscience these days has to talk about the Connect Home. It's the thing, uh, the flavor of the moment. What is a Connect Home? A Connect Home effectively is a map. And this is the most famous Connect Home, I think. It's the London Underground map. And it basically tells you where you go from various hubs and the routes you take. And some are very straightforward. So to go from Ealing to Bank, you just go down the central line, a very direct connection. If you want to go from Rickmansworth to Canary Wharf, you can get there, but it's a little bit more of a tortuous journey. But looking at the hubs and looking at the connections, you can draw a map of this, and that's called the Connect Home. This is a Connect Home, and I think most people out there will think, oh, that looks like the world, doesn't it? Actually, it was drawn by some software engineer who was looking at all the various connections people had on Facebook. And interesting, all the connections because it's such a huge global enterprise, everybody around the world had it. And lots of people live around the coast. It creates an outline of the world. Not many people in Russia and China. So Mark Zuckerberg, you've got work to do there. But that is a Connect Home map um, of social networks. So we can develop, using various um, neuroimaging techniques, Connect Homes of the human brain. And we can look at certain hubs and look at where they're connecting to and draw a map. And surprise, surprise, it looks like the outline of a brain. Now, one way of looking at connectivity is looking at oscillations in the brain. 
our brains actually talk to each other in a very, what we call a frequency-dependent manner. So, for example, this is using MRI scanning. You can look at blood flow in one area and look at the oscillations, look at the frequency that blood is pulsating. And the theory goes that the blood pulsating at a frequency, the nerve cells underneath it are firing at that frequency. And then you ask, well, where else in the brain can we see oscillations at that frequency? And that's the result you get. And then you say, OK, well, that part of the brain is talking to that part of the brain in a frequency-dependent manner. There is a connection going on there. And people have done this for various parts of the brain. And it's a fairly robust technique. If you did this sort of connectivity work in the audience here, you would find sensory motor connections, visual system connections, and more global um, generic connections. Um, it's a fairly robust technique, um, functional um, magnetic resonance imaging. And we can do it in the newborn infant. This, again, is uh, studies at King's College in London, uh, looking at premature babies from 30 weeks through to term. Uh, firstly, looking at the activation of the motor cortex. So they're moving the baby's arm, um, the baby's right arm, and the left side lights up. And it lights up even at 30 weeks, but it, the degree of activity increases as the infant gets bigger. And there's a program at King's College uh, called the Developing Human Connectome Project, which is trying to look at the mapping of the human brain from early prematurity and also looking at fetal connectivity through to term in lots of different parts of the brain. So I found on the wrong side of the room. This is work that my lab is doing um, in London. And uh, instead of using um, MRI, we're using an optical technique. Um, so the infant is quietly asleep. And we're looking at changes in blood flow in the head optically. An increase in blood flow is in red, and a decrease is in blue. And you can see, as the baby is quietly sleeping, the brain is active. And the points which are blue together or which are red together are firing together. These are the connections which are being made. And the beauty of this technique, you can go all the way down to very premature babies and look at the development of brain connectivity. I sometimes wonder, well, do we actually need all these very complicated scans? Can't we just look at our patients? And as a doctor, it does worry me at times. We do sort of sometimes forget with all our technology to look at the patient. This is a little baby, about 27, 28 weeks gestation. He's alert. I think he's using the right side of the brain. He's aware of his environments. He's not focusing on anything in particular. This little baby is dozing. He seems quite comfortable settling down to sleep. Here, this baby's distress. He's bringing his hand to his face. His eyebrows are furrowed. He's showing real behavioral traits that you and I would all recognize. So I'd like to say, take Descartes cogito ego sum and just change it slightly into sentio ego sum. I sense, therefore I am. It's sensing the outside world. OK, so why is this important? Well, I think it's fascinating, but I think it's also very important. Time Magazine, I think, summed it up. How the first nine months shapes the rest of your life. I think it's really important for the patients I look after. This little baby's brain has all this development to go in the intensive care unit. It's not in the warm, dark, wet environment of the womb. It's in a noisy environment, lots of light, lots of sound, lots of painful procedures, exposure to infection. And the brain has to develop in that environment. And it really what we find with a lot of these premature babies is a lot of them go on to develop neurodevelopmental problems later on in life. And if we can try and understand how the brain develops, we can start looking at ways we can try and optimize their brain growth and development for those born too early. 
The human Zika virus, very topical in the news today, causes microcephaly. Microcephaly is a lack of neurons migrating to the cortex. And so understanding neuronal migration, understanding these processes, is the way forward to try and understand this disease and try and prevent it. Sonic the Hedgehog. So I mentioned earlier the timing of these signaling molecules was crucial in different parts of brain development. And that's fantastic. It creates this very complex structure. But sometimes signals can be produced at the wrong time. And Sonic the Hedgehog has been implicated in the development of brain tumors seen in infancy. If we can understand the mechanism of Sonic the Hedgehog and the timing of actions, we can try and treat these tumors. And it's not just in infancy and childhood that um, understanding brain development affects us. Stress in the womb has lifelong effects. If the mother has um, stress or if the mother has a depression, either pre-morbid depression or postnatal depression, it stimulates the cortisol adrenal access. Cortisol is a stress hormone and it goes into crosses the placenta, it goes into the fetus, the fetus becomes stressed. And it's been shown that chronic stress in a fetal brain will damage the development of neurons. They have fewer neural connections. And it's very clear now that babies who are born whose mothers have had depression, either pre-mortal or, or um, postnatal depression, they themselves are much higher risk of developing depression later on in adolescence and adult life. So by treating this devastating condition in the mother, not only do you prevent her suffering, you also prevent the child's lifelong um, condition forming. I told you, I apologize, a few slides I'd lose you, and I'd lose you. This slide lost me, so I'm now, <laughs> I haven't a clue what's going on here. Um, this is a really important study, though, and it also makes a really important point. This is looking at connectivity in patients with schizophrenia. And the reason I've put this slide up is it actually highlights where I think neuroscience is really exciting. In order to try and understand this, you need to work with mathematicians, with physicists, with statisticians, with radiologists, with radiographers, and with clinicians, and bring them all together. And it's only by doing that that you can do this sort of complex analysis. And what this slide shows is that, this research done in Cambridge, that there's evidence emerging that patients with schizophrenia do have abnormal connectivity within their brain. And there's some other evidence emerging that possibly one of the places where this is abnormal connectivity is happening is in the development of the subplate and that there's some problem in subplate development. Go back to embryology. And it may be that very early um, problems going on can lead on to much later problems in life. So I've taken you from the fertilized egg, the formation of the neural plate, the hemispheric specialization, and then the, ultimately the complex connectivity of the brain. And I hope I've convinced you that the newborn brain is anything but a tabula rasa. And thank you for your attention. Uh, now, foolishly, um, I've talked too fast, and it now says I have 10 minutes for questions. <laughs> um, so I'm very, very happy to take questions from the audience. Yes. Thank you. Uh, has there been any work to discover what percentage of children born prematurely, so at six months, 
go on to have mental problems later in life? Uh, yes, uh, that's a very good question. The proportion of children who had gone to develop mental problems later in life. Well, the proportion of uh, premature babies to, who develop, I'll call them, to start with, neurodevelopmental problems has been very well studied. So babies less than 26 weeks, the two cohorts have been looked nationally both in 1996 and 2006, and a sort of back of the envelope, around 50% of those infants will develop some form of de developmental problem of which half, again, will be classed as severe. So severe would be cerebral palsy, would be hearing or visual problems. Milder would be things like attention deficit disorder, through to things like dyslexia or, or other sort of learning difficulties earlier on in school. There's a real interest that these babies may well go on to develop mental health problems into adolescence, and certainly the biology would suggest that. Uh, there are some studies ongoing looking at that, particularly at King's College in London. One of the challenges, though, is that these premature babies, in order to look at mental health later in life, have to be 20-plus years old. Um, and we're quite a new specialty, and having those long-term cohorts to follow up is really quite challenging. But I think the psychiatrists have really cottoned onto this and are linking and working with them, because you're absolutely right. If you want to stress a family and a baby, put them on an intensive care unit. The baby is chronically stressed throughout its stay on the intensive care unit, but the families, it must be the most horrific thing. It is really, these families go home with a sort of post-traumatic stress type disorder, um, which makes it really difficult to look after these, these young infants. So I think it is a really fruitful area of research. Okay, um, next, I, it's really difficult, I've got all these lights, so I shall just randomly, wait, so. Hi, you mentioned um, melatonin and the circadian mm. rhythm. Um, is there any evidence to suggest that it might be a problem exposing the newborns to as much light as they get? Because they wouldn't ordinarily get as much yeah, light. Yeah, so this is more premature babies exposed to light. Um, well, the two answers to this question. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I'd like to think, if you come to our unit at um, the Rosie Hospital in Cambridge, uh, we have these lovely blankets over the cots, and we do try and minimise light exposure. Unfortunately, there are times when we have to do procedures, they're sick, we have to take it all off and we put spotlights on them. And that, that's it. But we do try and minimise external light until they get to term. Melatonin, though, is fascinating. I mean, I, we should all be on melatonin. It's a fantastic <laughs> drug. It, it stops your jet lag, it prevents heart disease, it prevents cancer. It is, okay, it's not the soul, but it's pretty much everything else. Um, and there are some studies actually looking at giving both premature infants and also term infants melatonin. Um, in much bigger doses than is normally secreted as a way of protecting the brain. Nobody quite knows how it works, but it does seem to have some protective effect in, in brain development. Should we be taking it now, though? Uh, yeah, no, I think you should all be taking I, I don't, but I, I, I kind of think, yeah. Google melatonin. <laughs> I, I don't work for a pharmaceutical company. So. Is there a way of measuring the degree of convolution of a brain and uh, you also said, explained how in the different species uh, the convolutions are more complex in the case of humans. Uh, do convolutions in a baby get more detailed as it grows up into adulthood? Okay, so this is looking at convolutions um, within the brain. Yes, you can look at, uh, at I mean, the convolutions is, is, is like a sort of surface map topography of... of, of um, of the brain, um, and there are studies which have done and, and formed various indices, the convolution index, and it shows very nicely how the brain from a, a very primitive state, or very premature state to, to term, becomes more convoluted. But interestingly, no, by the time you get to term, all the folds and gyri and sulci 
are there and they're formed. Um, what happens thereafter, it's all about synaptic connections and making the sensible connection, but the actual complexity is there. Comparative anatomy is a, a different field in itself, and, and again, it's only just coming in because a lot of the studies rely on sophisticated MRI techniques, but if you put primates into an MRI scan, if you put uh, cats and things into MRI scan, you can see how the brains develop and compare them um, to humans and compare that sort of convoluted complexity. What is also interesting, just going back to, I'll talk about prematurity, an interest of mine, if you look at the complexity of a preterm brain at term, it's less complex than a term brain born at term. So there is something about the ex-utero environment which makes its brain not develop as well as if it was still in the womb. And it's not just the surface, it's deep down, and lots of very sophisticated MRI techniques are trying to tease out which bits of the brain are affected, which cause the brain to become slightly less complex, which probably then go on to explain why these children have problems later on in life. Okay, we'll take some from the back. It's relatively easy to introduce neonatal intensive care, but to what extent can you assess the, the infant decide to stop neonatal intensive care? Okay, that's... Um, I, was, I was very wary doing this talk that I was entering an ethical minefield, and I was trying to avoid it. I'm not an ethicist, but I think you've, it's a really, really important question. It's very easy to start intensive care. It is actually relatively easy to resuscitate a baby, even a very premature baby. And the question was, how easy is it to, with, to stop intensive care? And the answer is, it's really, really difficult, because we, need, we have got very... We're not very good at predicting which babies are going to have a poor outcome. At the extreme end, yes, we are. Actually, you know, if you have a very severe brain hemorrhage, it's very obvious, and, 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 or if you have multi-organ failure. Those cases are easy. But there's a, an area in the middle where it's really difficult to know. And one of the really amazing things about brain, which I just didn't even touch upon, is, is its capacity to regenerate. If, God forbid, I had a stroke here, my brain's fairly hardwired, I would end up with weakness, say, down one side, and with a lot of intensive physio, I might be able to regain some movement. But our brains, yes, they are plastic, but not to the degree that the developing brain is. And I've seen babies who've had half their brain literally wiped out. In fact, we saw one recently in clinic who presented at seven years of age, having had um, one fit and had a little bit of weakness on that side. We did a scan, and half her brain was missing, which was in mainstream school. Similarly, we've got other kids who've got completely normal MRIs, but have very profound disabilities. The relation between structure and function is not easy. And a lot of the research needs to go into trying to assess brain function to then predict which are the ones who, who are so severely damaged that withdrawing intensive care um, is an option. But it's, it is a real challenge, and it's always been a challenge. In ancient Greek times, they took to the, the temple of Karmatis, I think it was, um, uh, if you had a damaged baby and you'd give it to them in the temple and they would take the baby away from you. And that was seen as an acceptable way of withdrawing intensive care. Um, and there's a, a neonatal ethicist called Dominic Wilkinson who's written a book about this and says, our modern Karmatis machine is the MRI scanner. We put a baby in an MRI and we decide what, what their fate is. And yet it makes me slightly uncomfortable because we really don't know enough about the structure-function relationship. But it, it is a real, a real challenge. Okay, more questions. Let's Speaking um, as the grandmother of preterm twins who are now nine and in great form, thank you very much for your work. Uh, but secondly, you mentioned spina bifida and how it's still a problem worldwide and not here. Could you say something about the factors that 
lead to the development of spina bifida in terms of environment or whatever? Well, yeah, I'm, so I'm not a neurosurgeon who are the, who are the sort of specialist in spina bifida. The, the great miracle for spina bifida was folic acid. Um, and I don't think it's really fully understood in terms of... Uh, there may be a, bi a neurobiologist in the audience, and if they know exactly what folic acid does to folding of the neural plate, um, I, I'd be really interested to know. But uh, certainly giving mums folic acid does reduce very significantly the incidence of spina bifida. Uh, we also have antenatal screening, and some people decide not to continue pregnancy if spina bifida is detected, and that's why the incidence is fairly low. In developing countries, just that primary health care of giving hundreds of mums folic acid when they're pregnant would reduce the incidence significantly. And it is, you know, it is a real problem because the disability is real. The question right at the back. Okay. Um do you know what the first point is in the embryo in the womb where the brain actually performs some sort of function, senses something, moves something, rather than just sort of being there? Yeah, um, that's a, this is the danger of giving a public lecture. There's always somebody in the audience who asks a really pertinent question. That is a really pertinent <laughs> question. Um, well, Barnes Warnock said it's, it's gastrulation, it's day 14, that's when you've got a nurse cell. Before that time, there's absolutely no way this bunch of cells will feel pain, will sense anything, or do anything. Theoretically, once you've got the neural plate, it could. I don't think neural plate is the time when it, it does do something. It's probably a little bit later on, once, once primitive movements start, which is going to be around sort of, well, the heart starts about five weeks, so I think around sort of eight weeks that it will start moving around and begin to sense the environment. And it's actually a... Uh, the, the brain has to communicate with the outside world to learn about the outside world. Um, and one of the fundamental things we do, and actually you see this in childhood, is knowing self from non-self. Um, and also the, the ideal theory of mind, that's a slightly higher cognitive thing, knowing what I'm thinking, it may be different to what you're thinking, may be different to, to what other people are thinking, because all newborn babies think that everyone's thinking the same as them. Politicians do as well. Um, <laughs> so it's a spectrum. So early on, the baby, around sort of eight weeks, will start making movements and is, is starting to sense the outside world and build a picture. And the early fetal movements that occur in the womb are absolutely vital for wiring up and mapping the brain. Okay? Um, and that's why a lot of work is done. If a baby has a, a lesion on one side, which may cause a hemiplegia, there is a lot of evidence that actually if you try and stimulate the non-dominant side, the affected side, they can try and make more connections because they need that sort of communication um, and stimulation um, to, to wire up their brain. So we need the external world to build a picture of what's going on, and that starts probably about eight weeks. I don't know if that answered the question, but I've talked enough. So. Okay, I think time is up. I'll take a couple more. We've got okay. the ladies there. Can I just ask you about one of your slides where you showed how um, the synapses are actually formed very, very early in mm. life and then the curve kind of went down and you said it becomes really hard, for example, to learn a new language. Um, you didn't show any curves, I think, after the age of 17. Mm. Surely we build new connections all our lives and there is what Susan Greenfield emphasized, the plasticity of the brain and that kind of lifelong learning yep. and it almost looked as if it came down nearly to zero after the age of 17 with the synapses. Yeah. Can you comment on that a bit more please? Um, yeah, I, I don't think I've learned anything much since I was 17. Yeah, I, I think that graph is probably slightly mis, mis, um, confusing. What, what it's showing is synaptic density. So it peaks 
let's say for, for language, I think it was seven, it peaked. That's when all the connections are really dense. And then it, it reduces in density. But that doesn't mean that the synapses still can't make new connections and lose old connections. Okay? And that's what tends to happen. When we learn something new, we, in fact, we're learning all the time. Memories about making new connections, and our learning continues right through to age. So she's absolutely right. But we tend to also lose other connections. Um, so we hold a belief that this is true and then something else is true. You don't get this huge change in synaptic density. So it probably oscillates if you were to, to look at us. I mean, I'm speculating, because the only way of studying this is to chop up brains and count the synapses. But it probably oscillates as you learn. It goes up a bit, then goes down a bit, goes up a bit, goes down, down a bit. But it's n a completely different scale to what's going on in the developing brain, where everything is connected to everything else and then forms sort of those major pathways, which is also why it's very difficult to unlearn some early behaviors, okay? So in some ways, Freud, I, I have a lot of time for Sigmund Freud, but I think he was like, early life experience do have a large impact on what goes on later in life, and learning later in life is very possible, the brain is really plastic, and you're all here trying to learn, it's fantastic, you know, this is all happening. But it's hard, it's not as easy. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, learned a lot, as, as always. Um, question I want is uh, really about behavior, some newborns, my friend and I were discussing, some newborns seem to be uh, calm and content. Um, most of the others are, need a lot of attention, seem to be more readily distressed. Is there any evidence in the neuroscience about the neonates that could show why or how this is occurring? Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating. And again, that's why I completely disprove the idea that we're a tab tabula rasa. Uh, babies, all, they're all different. Um, now, the smug parents, so it's all down to parenting. You know, my first baby was really easy. You know, and we were good parents. That's why they were easy. And then the second one came along, and he was the son of the devil. Uh, <laughs> we weren't doing anything different. What was the difference between two? I, you know, I don't know. I certainly, I, I have a lot of sympathy, actually, with stress around the time of, of birth or antenatal stress and the effect on the infant. Um, actually, my children were the other way around. My, my, the first one actually was much harder work than the second one. The first one got stuck and got distressed and was a cesarean section. The second one just came out and he was much more chilled. N equals two, it's not good science. But, but there, there, there is evidence that stressed babies do have that problem later in life and that the inutrine environment may well affect it. I think it's complex. And I think fetal behavior is a very complex field, but it's all happening. And the more we understand, the more we can try and sort of, you know, give time for those babies who are difficult, because it's challenging. Okay, I'll take, no, I think I, I'll take one more last question, and then we've got to stop. No, we're out of time. We're out of time. I'm telling you that. Thank you very much. Thank you.